right, welcome to The Dotted Line, uh, episode 14, a series on contract drafting presented by Davis Wright. I'm Craig Baker. And I'm Wendy Kearns, and welcome to the second to last episode of the first season of The Dotted Line by Davis Wright Tremaine. And today we're going to talk about some exhibits, uh, which are not just for courtrooms. And we're going to spend some time going over um, exhibits that you might find in a statement of work or a work order or similar, a similar agreement where there's custom work being done for a customer. Yeah, and I think the, these are so important because um, really for two reasons. W one is these are the places that often the clients um, either prepare themselves, um, meaning the business clients, or um, it's where um, you know people are paying a lot of attention. And, and a lot of times the, the sort of the unique aspects of whatever relationship um, are finding themselves um, in these exhibits. And so, you know, one of the things to, to, to initially kind of think about is, um, you know, and, and I think for this episode, we're going to primarily focus on statements of work and order forms and work orders and, you know, the thing that is to be done or to be delivered um, and making sure that there's just a match between um, the document itself and the um, and, and what is um, in the exhibit, because sometimes those those aren't always um, uh, aligned in terms of uh, the initial drafts. Yeah, and, and we talked in, in prior episodes about things like defined terms and defined terms often will point to things like exhibits and uh, same thing with a statement of work or an order form. There's the, there'll be a lot of uh, document structures that you'll find that just punt things to the exhibits. So they'll be like payments as set forth in the exhibit, uh, you know, technical specifications as set forth in the exhibit. We'll go through those kind of one by one by one. Uh, but it's it's it, it would be very easy for lawyers. And I have seen uh, this happen many times where lawyers don't really look too much at what's in these exhibits and they're just kind of left for the business people to um, draft. But, uh, I, you know, I think it's probably safe to say uh, that we, we we get a lot of questions later about what ends up being in these exhibits. Wouldn't you say, Craig, you know, how many oh, times yeah. have you got a client call you and say, uh, what did I agree to do here in this exhibit? Yeah, well, I mean, just even even things like understanding um, what it is that's being delivered and ensuring that, um, you know, often people will focus on the price, but not necessarily how that relates to the number of units or or which version of the unit is being delivered. Um, and so we see, um, yeah, that happens all the time. I mean, I just think that uh, people have this idea, they throw it down, um, and then it's it's just sloppy from there. And I think um, you know, usually the first thing that I do when I'm looking at um, um, the sort of delivery document is make sure that it maps to the uh, agreement itself. Um, you know, we, we were working on a uh, document earlier this week where um, the client had um, decided to enter into a, uh, a um, sponsorship agreement, but the uh, exhibit was tied to a different sort of an agreement. And so we don't really have legal terms around the terms of the sponsorship. We have legal terms um, around the referrals. And so there's just this big gap in terms of um, how those two things, um, you know, map to one another in the document. Yeah, in, 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 indeed. Uh, so um, let's talk about some of the different, you know, common exhibits that we, we see. I guess 
First one I'd start with is uh, a product description document of uh, you know what's what's being provided. Um, now in a in an agreement where it's a you know stock uh, product that has a uh, a SKU or an inventory number or you know other kind of thing where it's sort of a known product. Uh, it, that's a pretty that's a pretty easy thing. You know, here's the widget. Here's the exact part number. Here's the you know exact UPC barcode. Here's the SKU. Here's you know whatever it is. This is how much it costs per unit. You know, people tend to know that that's that's what's being bought and and sold, and that usually has you know documentation. It's a baked thing. Um, Pretty straightforward. That, of course, is really hardly ever where the legal issues come up. A lot of time what you'll see is a product description for something that is to, you know, to be created or is in the process of being created. And there may be, um, you'll, see, you'll see these product description exhibits in various states of, uh, of baking. <laughs> Some, sometimes there might be, you know, parties will agree on it. Uh, sometimes it might be, well, here's the outline of it. And, and sometimes it might be, you know, much more fully, uh, fully spec'd out. Of course, uh, being lawyers, we like to see these documents as fully fleshed out as possible because that eliminates the number of disagreements that folks can have down the line as to what uh, what product or uh, what, what product is being uh, purchased. Uh, but, uh, you know, in particularly in the technology industry, uh, it doesn't always happen that way. And, uh, you know, different the, co the companies may come up with different needs uh, down, down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think that um... If, if we're looking at just the sort of the product description, I mean, the, the two things that I normally um, always try and um, double check on, um, assuming that the, the SKU descriptions and the, the number of units is correct. Um, one is making sure that if the client is getting a discount that is properly reflected in the document, um, we will often um, um, find that that is, um, it, it's either unclear or, you know, the numbers are odd. I think, Wendy, you, you always talk about one of your secret um, um, things that you do to, to make clients love you is that you actually add the, uh, the numbers up and make sure that they add up. I, I've, I've heard you raise that a number of times, and, and it's, it's amazing the number of times um, you can sort of save the client um, some thousand, set of thousands of dollars because you, you, you were able to sort of confirm that, that this is what they were, were, were actually getting. Yeah, or at least save someone from, from heartache or being shorted That's money. Right. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, and then I think the second thing that I always look for is um, whether there are delivery dates um, and what those look like um, around those units, um, because, you know, especially with so much being just in time inventory um, for um, all sorts of manufacturing and, and other kinds of delivery, making sure that these things um, are delivered properly. Um, sometimes um, we see this particularly with software, although people don't really buy software for, for installation that much anymore, um, but the delivery of software can have tax implications. And so sometimes, you know, there's specificity in terms of the way things will be delivered. Um, but, but, you know, I, understanding kind of the delivery process, the timing, um, all those things, because because that can really be critical for the the larger um, success of a project, um, particularly where you've got physical pieces of of hardware or equipment or something that's involved. Yeah, ex ex exactly. Um, 
and, and then an, another another exhibit that we see is uh, one that's more of a general deliverables exhibit. And a deliverables exhibit isn't, you know, a product exhibit usually. It's things that are being produced or things that are being um, created uh, under the under the statement of work. It could be partial uh, part. Uh, partial deliveries of products like for example let's take for example a you know custom computer you know we'll have the chassis built by this date and we'll have the you know hard drives built by this date and we'll have the you know cover built by this date or the the disk drive built by this date or you know something something like that it's kind of a silly example but a deliverable might be the the steps that it takes to get to the final uh, the final product, uh, and then that could be a professional services deliverable. It could be a piece of intellectual property. Um, it could be, uh, you know, portions of a, uh, a script. It could be portions of a film. It could be, you know, you name it. You can just chunk off uh, of off uh, deliverables, and um, and and that's kind of what a deliverable schedule is. It just sort of breaks out what the different things are and. Again, uh, us lawyers like to see good descriptions of what uh, these deliverables um, constitute because that ties usually ties into delivery dates and usually uh, ties into how much do these things cost and partial payments um, in, in an agreement. Yeah, and, and the other thing about deliverables is often, if you go back to the intellectual property section within a document, um, one of the things that they have kicked to the exhibit is the deliverable. So um, the customer will own the quote unquote um, deliverable defined term as defined in the statement of work. And so if the deliverable is what is being specified in the in the statement of work, um, then you know you need to make sure you know what's actually being where, where the title is transferring and, and where the, the sort of the scope of the license is. Um, you know, my favorite of, of one of these is, is I had, um, you know, e even in statements of work, I think customer, I mean, clients like to kick the can down the road and, and, you know, somebody was doing a game development agreement um, and they never actually specified what the game would be other than it was going to be mobile. Um, so there was no spec about what the game was. Uh, and so nine months down the road, um, there was a real divergence because, you know, one party thought they were buying a puzzle game and the other one thought they were developing a first person shooter. Um, and so I don't know how they got that far down the road, but the fact is that there was nothing in the exhibit. So when we were having a dispute about um, whether or not the, the vendor had performed or not, um, there was nothing when we looked at the spec of what it was that was to be delivered, it was a quote game, unquote. It wasn't a game with certain kinds of specifications around it. So it, it is really easy um, to sort of let these things just kind of flow and, and not get the specificity that you need. Yeah, um, I think that's an excellent point about about the IP. You know, in in uh, master service agreements or you know in the underlying agreements, you'll see uh, you'll see people owning deliverables. You might see deliverables as a, like a larger bucket of things and something like work product as as custom things that uh, that the um, 
uh, the customer actually ends up owning. You could see a variety of different definition constructs, but uh, I, I, I completely agree with you, Craig, that it's it's one of the more crucial definitions uh, in, in, in determining IP and in determining all, you know, all kinds of other, um, all kinds of other uh, parts of the agreement. Now, um, the, uh, there might be a milestone exhibit. Uh, the milestone exhibit might be part of the um, deliverables. It might be separate from the deliverables exhibit, but a milestone agreement or a milestone exhibit um, is basically a delivery schedule. Uh, it can be a little more expansive in terms of what needs to be done by when and what criteria need to be satisfied in order to make sure that the milestone has been achieved. So, you know, it's not enough to just deliver um, a, a deliverable by a certain date, it maybe has to go through acceptance testing or, um, you know, perhaps there's uh, something has been delivered and deployed to a, a customer site or something has been put in production or something has uh, received, you know, favorable ratings uh, by, you know, a ratings board or, a, you know, focus group uh, has, has, has been undergone by a certain date. Uh, could be, could be uh, milestones don't necessarily have to relate to to deliverables but usually the these things tie to progress in under the agreement um you know and, and again milestones usually you know relate to not only to payments but also to um, make sure that uh, the parties are together making progress under the under the agreement so that that you know other remedies don't kick in such as termination for breach or uh, so on um uh, what's your experience with these craig yeah i mean i think one of the things that um vendors hate and um customers or clients always want is some sort of firm set of delivery dates and completion dates and and things like that and um you know i think that you know one of the big risks that vendors have um is you know they get into a project and either they have a difficult um client or customer um, and things take longer or, you know, they, they go through um, and they do the discovery phase and they realize the project is much more complicated or they have problems with, with um, you know, getting access to either talent or um, subcontractors or something else in the process. And so they want as much flexibility in the delivery schedule as they can. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, the customer, most of the time work in progress has no value. So getting something that's 50% complete on a project is essentially the same as getting something that's 0% complete. So in order to have the successful project, you want to, um, to make sure you've got some firm deadlines um, in the process and some kind of structure so that you can make sure that the, the, the project is not going off the rails. Um, and we see this, I mean, I would say probably 90% of the disputes later on um, about sort of performance that I get, they're, they're usually time related um, as, that, as that happens. And so, um, you know, making sure that you've got some kind of way um, to both measure the time, go through the process, um, et cetera, I think is, is really important. Um, one of the problems that lawyers have though, is we love the waterfall process, which is okay, we have done step one, everybody's accepted it, now we're moving to step two um, in the development process. Most people do um, development in an agile process now. And so um, a lot of the, the vendors and developers, even on your own 
for your own client um, will often sort of push back about any kind of milestones because it doesn't it, it feels like it's inconsistent with the agile development process. And so one of the things you have to do or you often have to do is be creative about how you're going to tie people to timeframes, but also accommodate that agile process. Um, Wendy, have you had any sort of um, creative ways to attack that? Um, well, not, uh, not really, uh, uh, to be honest, I think that it's, it is a difficult one. I, I think that, uh, the, you know, to your point, development isn't, it isn't like this, you know, uh, I, I, I build this block, then I build a block on top of that, then I build a block on top of that, then I build a block, you know, it's, it's more geometric and expansive than, than that. So, you know, one, one way to try to, um, to do this is to break out things into, into to smaller blocks or to have, you know, progress um, check-ins and have uh, more governance uh, where, you know, the, uh, it, the executives at various levels are meeting at different different cadence uh, and um, to also, you know, uh, see about termination for convenience rights if, you know, if the um, executives are, uh, uh, you know, if the, the business people feel like it's just not making um, progress instead of the, you know, real rigid, uh, real rigid milestones, but it's certainly easier for us to draft. Um, uh, and uh, from a lawyer risk perspective, uh, 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 risk aversion, uh, you know, we, we I, I agree, we love those, we love those milestone blocks. I don't know, what, what about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing more stuff with like progress reports and sort of committees that are there to escalate things against a against a working plan and um and yeah, so similar, similar. yeah it's sort of a modified agile process um kind of thing and and that seems to be people seem to be amenable to that but it is harder if you have a dispute to pin somebody down and say you're in breach because um you know because this this happens and so um so yeah so i think that that's um a big part of it it's harder um, to it's harder to get the and you know pin the enforcement of a contract with a agile and progress report type structure yeah Exactly. So um, obviously another thing that's always in the statements of work or work orders are, you know, our, our payment and, and sort of how that looks. Um, so um, how do you sort of think, think through that in terms of, of, of when you're approaching this? Yeah, so the I guess the payment schedules can look all kinds of different ways in agreements like this. Uh, it really runs the gamut. Uh, what, uh, what I like to do on these is definitely try to have a business or a finance person do a first draft, and then I will walk through it with them, um, at, like just cold looking at it to, and tell them what I think it means, uh, because sometimes what, what business people intend and how you might how lawyers or a judge might interpret the contract later are two two very different things. And this really comes up uh, where you have variable revenue share formulas or royalty formulas or other sort of variable compensation. Um, it's, you know, less of an issue uh, with, you know, a table of like, you know, this is 
this amount by this date, you know, which I can use my party trick of, you know, adding up the numbers and making sure that they add up right. But, but, uh, but usually um, where you have where, you know, where we get questions later and where you have the most amount of disputes is, is where there are um, narrative descriptions of money coming in the door and uh, figuring out how that gets divvied up between the parties or a you know revenue share or things like that. So I'll really try to walk through that and explain it back to my clients in um, kind of a plain English and make sure that I really understand it. And that helps that helps me kind of tie out uh, where there might be discrepancies. Uh, I don't know. What about you, Craig? Um, do you have any? Yeah, no, I think that that's consistent with mine. I mean, I think one of the things that I always encourage and, and I always ask the client for is, um, you know, what is the timing of the payment and is there a holdback um, before you get to, you know, whether it's live in a production environment or some some process. I, I always recommend that um, if they if they don't have a firm financial element involved, um, you know, someone, you know, one party knowing that they've got money sitting in a bag, they're more likely to continue talking to someone. Um, and so I think that that's always, um, um, th that's always an issue so that you can um, try and, you know, you have that lever because often, you know, having a lawyer send a, a demand letter, um, you know, it, it, it may or may not, you know, work with that, with that customer. But if they, if they know that there's cash, um, that isn't being, you know, and, and usually we're five, 10, 15% of the, of the total value, um, you know, kind of thing. Um, I, I think that that's, um, that's often useful, uh, when, when the client is structuring, you know, kind of payment. Um, the other thing that comes up that's, that's a quirk in this area are, um, third party expenses and costs and, and other things. Often we see this with agency agreements, um, where somebody has incurred, obligations to a third party uh, and so they want to make sure that those commitments are funded um, and so you know one of the things that I try to encourage clients to do again you know where I have this influence um, is to sort of separate those out because sometimes people want huge um, front-end payments on things um, it, purportedly to, to pay these third-party costs but you know some of it is so that they can get the, the money in the door um, and, you know, and front load, um, you know, a huge amount of the money on the, on the project. And again, from the vendor perspective, that's about ways to minimize risk. So um, if you can um, bifurcate those so that you're, you're paying, you know, the out-of-pocket costs upfront, but the rest of it, you can sort of hold back. I, I think it gives a more balanced approach to sort of leverage with the, the fees over the life of the contract. Yeah. Um, uh, one other thing about third party, uh, third party costs here is in, in technology agreements, you can uh, sometimes the issue of who pays for third party depend dependencies in a technology contract, such as like, what if, you know, there's uh, third party operating system software or third party hardware equipment or whatever that, uh, you know, the deliverables need to run on or interoperate with who pays for uh, who pays for that is that part of the 
contract or is it not part of the contract? Uh, you know, I, I, I've seen people get caught uh, with uh, flat footed on, on the um, $100,000 database software that they had to go and buy and it just wasn't addressed and the tech people didn't call it out. So, uh, you know, we're, we're to the wise, just um, ask, uh, ask about those third party uh, costs if, if you uh, have a contract where that might come up. Uh, and then the last, last uh, exhibit uh, is, is the, uh, you know, kind of one of the more basic ones, but very helpful, uh, which is like a, a form of statement of work or a form of order form or form of, um, and, and this is often a, an exhibit to a, a master agreement, but it's very helpful in, in um, getting to the the parties to where they need what what they need to draft going down the line. So in order to properly set up everything that we just talked about, uh, having your uh, having your clients set set these things up to be to begin with will make all this stuff go smoother and will give uh, the business teams and and uh, your in-house clients kind of a roadmap to make sure that uh, hanging all this together along with whatever um, you know whatever master underlying agreement it, it, it it'll just go a lot more smoothly down the line and there'll be there'll be less less hiccups and less mistakes overall yeah no i think that that's um that's right i mean i always encourage the clients to think about you know what are i mean most people will think about material business terms for the statement of work as being um you know who's doing what who's owning what how much is it going to cost and when do i have to deliver it um but there are often things that are super important um, in the course of a, of a relationship um, and, and the, the product or service that's being, being purchased or delivered. And so making sure that you're addressing those things with specificity in the statement of work, I think is, is important regardless of what, what it is. And so while those may be the, the, the core elements of a statement of work, um, I always think it's important to ask the client, you know, what else do we really want to get negotiated up front because um, sometimes there there are um you know i don't normally see escalation processes in um in statements of work but for some clients and vendors uh, or i mean customers and vendors that happens and they and they want to see that um in in the arrangement because um there are some unique elements to it are there key people that if these people leave the the project that's going to be a real problem um you know do, do people have to have certain qualifications um you know certain training certain certifications um as a condition of um doing the work and you want to sort of um sort of underline that um in the in the statement of work so so thinking about those things you know that that would be really problematic um that might be outside those those sort of core four four areas yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, so Craig, um, once again, our audience has come through and uh, they have a good question this week. So ready? Yep. Okay, so the question is, what should take precedence, the exhibits, the statement of work or the master agreement itself? What, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think it varies. Um, I think one, it varies from the classic lawyer response. It depends. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. It depends. Um, in this case though, I think it's, it's true. I think it's yeah. true. Well, and sometimes it depends because some, you know, my experience is that some clients often feel about order of precedence, the way they feel about arbitration, they have very strong views, but they're often different. 
Um, and so um, I have some folks who absolutely want to ensure that um, the master or the, the body of the agreement takes precedence, often because they are um, maybe less trustworthy uh, of the salespeople who are filling out the statements of work. Um, on the flip side, I've had other people who say, we're going to have a lot of variability from and a lot of sort of customization in our statement of work. So we want to make clear that that, that sits on top of it, that the, the statement of work essentially serves also as a writer um, to some of the, the core um, um, provisions. And so, um, so I see a lot of variability here. Um, I think the bigger issue um, in this is is it's, it's relatively easy to manage this where there's only the two sets of exhibits. Um, but I've seen increasingly, you'll always see this in any kind of government contract um, arrangement. There are four or five or six exhibits um, and trying to understand how all of those, um, that order process works, that can, that can get very complicated. How about you? What are, what's your view on it? Yeah, I, um, uh, it, ideally, the, uh, these things would be drafted so that they all work in harmony and there wouldn't be, you know, conflicts between the different documents. So I, I, there there are a lot of things that ideally would be, be ideally. wonderful, right? Yes. So yes. So I think, you know, if, if you're the drafter, the, the best thing you can do is to try to make these things just not repeat each other and, and not be in conflict with each other. But that sometimes does not happen uh, when, uh, you know, you have different people drafting a statement of work and the master agreement is, you know, pre-existing or uh, is being drafted by somebody else but yeah more often than not I've I've seen the statement of work take precedence over the master agreement and then the exhibits don't have precedence over uh either document so the exhibits are just kind of attachments to the statement right. of work and hopefully the exhibits in the statement of work don't conflict with each other because the exhibits are really just part of the statement of work i say that's the most common construct that i see but it's not always the it's not always the one that cut that clients want i mean sometimes they really want to make sure that the terms in the master agreement are just completely you know, hard and fast rules of engagement and no random people down the line can just overwrite them in a statement of work. So it, it, it you know, uh, to your point, it depends on client tolerances too. Yep. Yep. No, that's, that, that makes sense. Um, so what, what is your, um, tip, tick, tip, 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 <laughs> I knew uh, every, you know, I've been trying not to make that mistake um, all season. So, of course, uh, the tip, trick, or quirk uh, that you have this week, Wendy. So, um, I, I, you know, go, going back to something you said earlier, we, we get a lot of questions about how, how do I get out of this agreement? And uh, so, this goes this goes back to what we were talking about how you know when people come to us and they say how do i get out of this agreement you know my vendor just isn't doing the job or the vendor might say the customer is running up charges the customer's never satisfied the customer doesn't accept you know the customer's you know expecting a lot more you know i'm bleeding money on this thing like how, you know how do i get out um almost 
always it it the the issue with the documents are that there wasn't enough specificity in the agreement so that it's it's hard to like point to you know well vendor it wasn't totally clear what you were supposed to do or it wasn't totally you know it wasn't totally clear about the the deadlines or it wasn't totally clear you know where the where the road started and where the road ended that's that's a lot of the times and so so that's a lot of times where we have a hard time saying well maybe you can get out or or not um and uh and so then you know we can't tell somebody well you can get out for breach or well you can terminate this agreement or, or not so i would say you know tr try to get your clients to be as most uh, as as specific as possible i would also recommend try to get them to have a good governance of um uh, a good governance procedure in the statement of work if it's not in the master and tr and make sure that they have an active business conversations going all the time because uh, just a lot as with you know any with human nature things can be resolved through active communication if people are just talking uh, to each other about problems um and that is you know sort of the prevention is the best medicine uh because contracts are not always going to be perfect and they're not always going to be as specific as craig and i would like when someone comes to us and says how do i get how do i get out of this it's much better if the com if the parties had a healthy relationship to to begin with so that that might sound a little woo woo but i i think that that I've, I've seen many business disagreements get resolved just because the parties talked a lot uh, uh what's your tip uh craig so so i have two um one is actually i think obvious I, and and i didn't think this would be one i would would use but i'm going to say it anyway which is um make sure you scrub the marketing copy from the um from the statement of work um, it, it, it happens more often than I expect, where a typically a vendor um, will have um, language in the statement of work that um, is basically aspirational um, and may even be cut and pasted from some marketing copy. Um, we had one the other day that said that the transition would be hiccup free. So I'm not sure a what hiccup free means under the law, but but b I don't think that a vendor would want to commit to that. But because they had sort of cut and pasted it from their marketing copy, um, it's now incorporated into the into the contract through the statement of work, and and that's not a commitment you want to make. So so being able to sort of scrub and convert the language into um, you know, into sort of legally actionable language, I think is is critical, and it happens more um, than than I would expect that that sort of this marketing copy gets gets pulled in. Um, the the subtler tip I have is um, when you're characterizing intellectual property and any kind of license, um, patents are pretty easy because there's usually a um, um, a registered patent that you're licensing. Trademarks are usually discrete. Often software is, is you know, it is a defined um, product that's being produced. Um, but any kind of know-how, trade secrets, these kinds of things, they're pretty ephemeral. They're really hard to define. Um, and often we as the lawyers don't know what is actually being transferred. And so there is a there is a lot of nuance there. And so I would make sure that you take an extra pass through looking at sort of um, trade secrets and um, and know-how that's getting licensed in in particularly in patent licenses, but in in any kind of licenses that goes. Excellent.
Well, I think that's all we have time for today, Wendy. So um, one more episode this season, but for, for episode 14, um, you know, until next time, this is Craig Baker. And I'm Wendy Kearns. Thanks very much for joining us on The Dotted Line by Davis Wright Tremaine. We'll see you in episode 15.